Lord, speak to us now from your word in just the ways each one of us needs to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember last time, last week in John 1, we talked about uh, senior portraits and fall walks, something that contained the essence of something else, a picture containing the essence of the person it displays. And we talked about when God shows us his portrait, as it were, in Christ, that it is characterized, the essence of his character in John 1 was grace and truth. It was grace on top of grace. It was like an ice cream sundae or a banana split. It was one good thing on top of another. This morning we're going to be in John 1 verses 19 through 34. You can peruse there if you like. But this morning we're going to focus on John the Baptist and his ministry. And John's actually already come up in John 1 and he's going to come up again but we'll make him the focus of what we're doing this morning in John chapter 1. So John the Apostle switches to John the Baptist here. He's just finished talking about grace and truth in Christ. And at verse 19 he says, This is the witness of John the Baptist when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who are you? Very direct question. Who are you, John? John is baptizing at the river. John is preaching and calling people to repentance. And John is not part of the Sanhedrin. He is not a recognized leader in Israel. And so the recognized leaders send folks down to him to say, Who are you and what are you up to? John confessed. He didn't deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. Now this is funny. You'll see this. Jesus does the same thing. Ask him a direct question and get a indirect answer. John's pattern here in this chapter is to ask direct, to answer direct questions with indirect answers. John, who are you? I am not the Christ. Wow, okay. <clears throat> You're not the Christ. Why in the world, he could say a million things, why does he say I am not the Christ? We'll see there's a trio here that are going to be reflected from the Old Testament. John just, he's kind of putting them at rest right off the bat to say, I make no claim and I make no pretense that I am the Messiah. We'll talk about the three personages in the Old Testament that the Jews knew would come. The Messiah is at the top of the list. And you know, if you think kind of entering the time of year where Thanksgiving, Santa Claus is up at Dillon, so Christmas is just around the corner. But uh, one of the best-known Old Testament passages that you typically hear at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, a child will be born to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom he'll reign, etc., etc., 2 Samuel 7 is God's promise specifically to David that he would, through David's line, produce a king who would reign on David's throne whose kingdom would never end. There's lots of other passages. Isaiah probably, as far as one book, contains most or more than any other. But the Jews knew God had promised them this epic, mythical stature king who would come, who would defeat all of Israel's enemies, and who would rule on David's throne. And so one of the questions, if someone came along and seemed to show or display unique power or authority, the Jews are waiting for the Messiah. So this would be in the back of their minds if they're asking John, who are you? Messiah is one of the options. 
Messiah is who Israel's waiting for. So he starts his indirect answer by saying, I am not the Messiah, by the way. John, uh, verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. These are the are numbers two and three of this Old Testament trinity. <clears throat> Why do they ask about Elijah and the prophet? Remember that Elijah was a real prophet, you know, key figure in Israel's history. But Malachi, in your English Bible, and I say English because the Jewish Bible, the origin of the books is different, and that comes into play in some other passages. But the last verses you and I read in our Old Testament are Malachi 4, and it's the prophecy about Elijah returning. So the Jews knew Elijah is supposed to come. In Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So to the question, are you Elijah? John says, I am not. Elijah's going to come, Malachi said. He's one of the three options the Jews can think of. Are you Elijah? No. I'm going to take a bunny trail here for just a minute. Um, Hopefully this is meant to be clarifying, not confusing. I hope it ends up that way. If you know the Synoptic Gospels related to John and Elijah, you know that this answer could be confusing. So I hope this is helpful in case you read some other passages. Each of the Synoptics all have a passage that talks about John and his identity related to Elijah. Let me read briefly to you. Out of Matthew 17, Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Future tense, but I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. The disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So in Matthew 17, Jesus says, Elijah, future tense, is coming, will restore. And Elijah did come and they did to him whatever they wanted. They killed him. Mark 9, he said to them, Elijah does come. We'll first come and restore all things, but I say to you, Elijah has indeed come. He will come future. He did come past. Luke 1, I think, is the key text to help us put this all in perspective. John says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says, Elijah will come, and he did come. The disciples know he's talking about John the Baptist. In Luke 1, when the angel's talking to Zechariah about his child, the child that he and Elizabeth will have, the angel says of this boy, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, before God, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will come, his ministry will be in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. One of the things you may know if you read Old Testament prophecy is that oftentimes a prophecy has a near fulfillment, partial fulfillment, and a later or far or full fulfillment. And I think that's what we have here. Jesus comes to the earth. Jesus is the Messiah. He comes to the earth, and his forerunner, John, Elijah, comes also. But it's a given in his first coming, in his incarnation, the first time that he's coming, that he will be rejected by the nation. He will not rule as Yahweh on earth. He'll come and bear our sins instead. And John's ministry, while in the spirit 
and power of Elijah is sure to be rejected just as the object of John's testimony will be rejected. So we could say of John the Baptist, he was Elijah with a little e, if you will, because Elijah, Jesus says, after John's death, is coming. He will come before or related to Jesus' second coming as conquering king and Messiah. But John's version, if you will, of Elijah was rejected, as was Jesus. Elijah will come again before Jesus' second coming, or tied in and associated with his second coming. So John says to the question, are you Elijah? Well, no, I'm not. Well, at least no in the sense that he's not the ultimate fulfillment of Malachi 4. He is a little fulfillment. He is a partial fulfillment. He is a near fulfillment, but he's not the ultimate fulfillment. So to the question, are you Elijah? He says no. Related to the prophet, this is probably a lesser known text, but out of Deuteronomy 18, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, God speaking to Moses. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the third of the Old Testament options for the Jews is someone that we know is coming that will have authority, and John's displaying authority, is, are you the prophet? Because in Israel's history, Moses is the Exodus, that's about 1400 B.C., no one has claimed for 1400 years to be this prophet. They're still waiting for him. So they say, are you the prophet? Is that who you are? He says no, and he's not. And in in fact, excuse me, the early church understood that Jesus was the prophet. It wasn't another person in Israel. It wasn't another Jewish prophet or person. It was Jesus himself. And in fact, ultimately, we will see that Jesus is in himself. He's the ultimate prophet of Deuteronomy or elsewhere. He's the ultimate priest of a new order, Hebrews tells us. And he's the ultimate king or anointed Messiah. He is all three of the Old Testament offices rolled into one. So, John says to the, are you the prophet? No, I'm not him either. So they said to him then, can you imagine they're getting a little frustrated? Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Okay, John, we know who you aren't. You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. We get that much. But what do you say about yourself? What's your testimony to yourself? Verse 23, he said, His direct answer is, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. I love this answer. They're asking him, John, are you any of these three really important people that we know are coming? Are you this great Messiah? Are you this great prophet? Are you Elijah born again? Are you any of these great people we would look up to? No. When he answers them, he's not even a person. He's not only great, he's not even a person. He's a voice. He's only a voice. Five times in John 1, John is described as a witness. A witness simply declares something he knows to be true. He bears testimony to someone or something else. And then in two verses in chapter 1, John actually does that, described five times, does it twice, related to Jesus when Jesus appears. So when they ask him, what do you say about yourself? What's your claim? What great person are you? 
He doesn't even say he's a person, much less any of the characters they were waiting for. Thank you. He just says, I'm a voice. I'm a voice. The text he's quoting, excuse me, is Isaiah 40, verse 3. If anyone tells you that the Bible is boring, I don't think they've read Isaiah 40 through 66. This is some of the loveliest prose you will read anywhere. I love literature, but I'm telling you, Isaiah 40s, it does not get any better than this. One of the loveliest passages in all the Bible. But at Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, for Elohim. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, I am that I am, Israel's God, will be revealed and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. To the question, who are you, after negating the others, he simply says, I am. I'm a voice, but I am a voice who's preparing the way for God. We've talked about passages related to Jesus' deity. This is another. John says that the one he introduces is Yahweh. There can be no ambiguity here. Yahweh is the I am that I am of Exodus. He is the God with whom there is none other. This is a claim for Jesus' identification with Yahweh again. So, who are you, John? John says, I'm a voice. John the Apostle tells us, in contrast, Jesus is the Word. John is a voice. Jesus is the Word. John is like a flute. Jesus is the music. John is like a singer. Jesus is the song. You'll notice he always digresses from an invitation to exalt himself, He hides behind the person he's bearing testimony to. And he does the same thing here. I'm not even a person. I'm just a voice, and I'm here to do one thing. I'm here to proclaim or testify or witness to the one who comes after me, to Jesus, the Messiah. Let me ask you at this point, as I thought through this passage, it's great to know what a passage says and what it means. And then the last question we ask ourselves is, what do we do with it? So what? The so what factor. John the Baptist knew who he was and what he was about. He knew his purpose for living. He knew what his mission was, his mission in life. And I would ask you, as I've asked myself, do you know what your mission in life is? Do you know the purpose God has you on this earth here and now? This is a big question. This is one of those million-dollar questions or $64,000 questions or whatever. If you remember, when we looked at verse 1 of this chapter, the optional extra credit homework assignment was, write an opening sentence, like John had, of your life, an opening sentence to the story of your life that is somehow filled with the essence of you, who you are, what you are, where God has you, Some sentence that would reflect, that would give us some sense of what was to come in the story of your life. And let me suggest this morning that you do another extra credit assignment, and that is this. Write a mission statement for your life. And when I say this, I don't mean in some business sense. Mission statements are big in business. I don't mean that. 
I mean in the sense that John the Baptist, if someone comes to you and they say, who are you? What is your mission on the earth? What is your purpose for living? What would you say? This is one of those questions that we rarely think long or hard enough about to have an answer for, but it gets down to the essence of who we are and what we are. So think about this this week. Write a mission statement. This, this should be as short, no longer than one sentence. It could be a single word. It could be a few words or a phrase, or it could be a sentence. But if you wrote a mission statement, a word, a phrase, or a sentence that described your purpose in life as you understand it, what would it be? What would it say? See, John knew his mission. He had a purpose. So his life was lived with that purpose and that mission in front of him. So that when he died, his mission was fulfilled. Just like Jesus on the cross, I've done it all. My mission is accomplished. What's your mission in life? What is the purpose for your existence here and now? Uh, this is not an easy assignment, is it, as you start thinking about this? So let me, let me follow up with a few, few thoughts. One is that if you're a Christian, there are some things related to purpose and mission that are true of all of us, right? I mean, just think through this for just a minute. Your mission is to become more and more conformed to the image and the person of Jesus Christ. That's true for every Christian. We are called, like John, to be witnesses to other to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's true of every Christian. We're called to grow in holiness. We're called to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Many things are true of all of us. Some things are also true of us generally. If you're a spouse... There are things related to your mission, your purpose related to your spouse. If you're a parent to your children, children to your parent, employer to your employees, employees to employers, students, etc., etc. So there's some things that are generally true of you, just based on your place in life, where you live, your neighborhood, what is your life about. That has things to do with your mission and your purpose. Another thing is, you might say that in a qualified sense, your mission and purpose may change over time. Think about this for just a minute. On the grand scale, John had one mission and one purpose in life, which was to be this voice of Isaiah 40, to be this witness to Christ. John was six months older than Jesus, so he lived about 33 years. His mission and his purpose was only fulfilled in the last couple years of his life. So if he said before that, and by the way, you know, we're not all John the Baptist in the sense that this was a unique calling and a unique purpose to introduce Jesus, Messiah, to Israel. This happened once. So we're not going to necessarily have that kind of purpose. Um, but we do have a purpose that is specific to us and where we live. And it might change over time. You might be a student. You might say right now, my mission is to study hard, to learn all I can at school, to prepare for that next phase of my life. That's fine. But you know, we should be able to sit down and say, Lord, I understand that your mission for me is whatever. Think about this this week. And if you can, render that down. Think about your life. What do you understand God's unique call to you is? It doesn't mean that no one else would have the same mission but for you, you understand this is what God has 
This is my life about where I am, where I live, the people I know. This is God's mission. This is his purpose. This is his plan for me. So think about that. John knew his mission. He knew his purpose. He was a voice and he was a witness to the one who had come. Verse 24, it says, They had been sent from the Pharisees, the questioners, and they asked him and said to him, Why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What authority do you have then, bud, to be out here baptizing? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water. By the way, he does not answer the question directly again. I'm baptizing in water, but among you stands one whom you don't know. It's he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. John doesn't say, by the way, this is my authority. He just says, yeah, you know, I am baptizing. But let me tell you about somebody else who also will baptize. And John says, you remember later, in the Gospels, Jesus will say of those born of women, there's been not one greater than John the Baptist. That means... If we're a Jew in Jesus' day and we're thinking about the heavy hitters of the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, or any of the kings, Jesus says there's none greater than John the Baptist. John, though, hides himself behind Jesus. He doesn't proclaim some unique authority. He says, I am baptizing, but I am nothing compared to the one who stands in your midst who will himself baptize you. John says, the place I occupy before him is so small that I am not worthy as the lowest slave in a household to even touch his sandal to take it off and wash his feet. My stature is not great enough to even take the place of the lowest slave before the one who stands in your midst now. So each time John has the opportunity to exalt himself, he humbles himself and points to Christ. This is an incredible, incredible example. Verse 29, the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is where he's doing what he said his mission is. He is proclaiming Christ in this verse. This verse, by the way, is one of the two verses attached to our church's name, Lion and Lamb. And we're not going to look at that in depth today. We will next time, though, as we look at the two verses following what we're looking at this morning. But John says, as soon as he has the opportunity to do so, this is the one, this is the one to watch, this is the coming one to whom I bear witness. He continues at verse 30, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I didn't recognize him. I've seen him before, but I didn't recognize who he was. But in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing. John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, John has already told us that he knows what his mission is. It's a voice and it's a witness. He tells us here what his method is. 
Verse 31, in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing. John's like the warm-up act if a band comes to town. They're getting you ready for the big headliner. Well, John says, my ministry, my mission is to proclaim someone else, and my method was to baptize. There was method in the madness. He was drawing a crowd by his preaching and by his baptizing to whom then he could turn and introduce Jesus. It's interesting in this passage, you know, John and Jesus are related also. The scripture doesn't say anything about this, but they very well could have known each other, seen each other, visited with each other growing up. But John says, when I saw Jesus, I would not have known who he was unless the Spirit came and remained on him. And John's gospel doesn't give us this, but the other gospels do, that when Jesus was baptized, you remember, the Spirit descends in the appearance of a dove, and the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son. John, who was related to Jesus and knew him, didn't know who he was, apart from God signaling it through the Holy Spirit. And if you remember back to Isaiah 53, Isaiah said there would be nothing about the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, by which you would recognize some grand glory or honor. There would be nothing about his appearance that would make you think this is the Messiah. And if you go back even further, do you remember Israel's first king, King Saul, was a head taller than anyone else, handsome, rugged. He was a great physical specimen. But do you remember where his heart was at? Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't good. Later, when Samuel, who anointed Saul, goes to anoint the next king, God tells him, Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And just a brief word, when you judge another person based on what your eyes can see, you're going to miss it. Because what our eyes can see does not evaluate in any real sense who a person is, where they're at, or what God's calling on their life is. We talked about this related to evangelism before. If you and I had seen Jesus walking down the street, we would have said, Joe Schmo, Joe Nobody. Physically, even his cousin, even his forerunner says, I wouldn't have known who he was if the Spirit hadn't shown me. Nothing physically to show who or what he was. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why, when we look at others, it's just the wrong thing to judge someone else based on what your eyes can see. Spiritual discernment requires the Holy Spirit, and that's not what our eyes see. It's not what our senses take in, whether we're evangelizing or related to who someone is. John says, I wouldn't have known him. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is, Jesus is the Son of God. John knew who he was and what his mission was. And he didn't aspire to more than God had determined for his life. We'll see this later. I wonder if you and I have some clear sense of what our mission, our purpose is in the time God gives us on the earth. If we know... And if we know what it is, if we embrace God's design for us, do we find satisfaction 
and contentment in being all and only what God has set out for us to be or not. I want to close with an illustration. I thought it was interesting on the morning sports page, the front page of the sports section. Um, I'm going to forget her name now. Anyway, thank you, Nicolay. Yeah, Shawnee Heights. This gal has won the Centennial, the Regional, whatever, and the state cross-country races in track four years in a row, third person in Kansas history to do so. This gal, however, has a teammate for four years who's also her relative, a distant cousin, the article says. This gal also, in her own right, is an outstanding track and cross-country runner. And you know what? No one knows her name. And do you know why? Because her teammate is Nicolay. No matter how well this gal has done, she has always been second fiddle, distant second fiddle. When they were interviewing her for the story, she said because of her friendship with Nicolay and because of her relationship, both through blood and personally, she said, her glory is my glory. I thought, what a great line. She basked, if you will, in the reflected glory of her teammate. And it was okay with her that she was less well-known. And that wasn't the illustration I prepared for this morning, but Eric Little was another track star. Most people know Eric Little because of the movie, Chariots of Fire, came out about 20 years ago. He was fairly well-known in Christian circles before the movie, but certainly was much better known because of the movie afterwards. But the comparisons between Eric Little and John the Baptist are several. Eric Little was the son of Scottish missionaries. He came to Christ early. He was a devoted Christian even in his youth. And one of the things about Eric Little that he found out early was that God had given him simply remarkable physical ability in speed. He was the fastest man in the world in his day. Um, Just like... John the Baptist, though, he did not use this unique ability to glorify himself, but used it as a platform for his real purpose or real mission in life, which was pointing others to Christ. Um, Eric Little says there's a great line in the movie in which his sister fears for him because of the glory and the fame resulting from his track success. She's afraid will deter him from his larger purpose and mission of evangelizing, being a missionary back in China. He tells his sister, God has made me fast and I feel his pleasure when I run. And then the movie does a great job in showing that he used his success on the track to gather an audience just as John had with his baptism so that he could preach the gospel and point these folks to Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. If Eric Little had been running for his own glory... He wouldn't have faced the trouble he did in the 1924 Olympics. Eric Little believed that it was wrong to work on the Sabbath. And just a minor digression, I disagree with his theology, but it's what he firmly held, and so he would have violated his own conscience to do other than he did. But the preliminary run for the 100 meters, which was his event, was on Sunday. This guy's qualified for the Olympics. It's in France. He's representing king and country, and he tells them, I can't run. Sorry. He came under intense criticism and pressure to run. 
but he would not violate his conscience because in the end, he was not running for king and country, earthly king. He was running for the king of heaven, the king of glory. So he said, I won't do it. I can't do it. As it was, if you know the story, he did run in the Olympics. He ran the 400 meters. He had honored God and God honored him and he won the gold medal in the 400 meters. But just like John the Baptist, he didn't use what could have been something to elevate himself to do so. He always pointed to another. And after winning the 400 meters, he could have settled down in England with a cozy, comfortable life and traded on his name and his reputation and done very well in life. But he didn't. He went back to China where he had no name and was of no importance whatsoever. And he went back to his mission and his purpose, which he'd held all along. He simply used the track, like John did baptism, to gather a crowd to introduce them to Jesus. He did the same thing. And then he went back to China to be a missionary. And exactly like John the Baptist, he gave the ultimate witness when he was executed, martyred, just as John the Baptist was, because he was a Christian testifying to Christ. The the comparisons are are great. But Eric Little or John the Baptist are these great examples of someone who found their life in Christ and then whose purpose became to declare Christ to others. They had a purpose. It was to be a witness or a voice. And both of them had a method. Both of them fairly unique. John baptizing, Eric Little's running ability. Most of us don't have those things specifically like that. But they had a mission and they had a method. And they both gave the ultimate testimony in their life, giving their life. But uh, John is such a great, great example. Knew his purpose, fulfilled it, had a method, kept it, and always pointed others to Christ. John knew his calling, his purpose, his mission. And I'd ask you, I certainly ask myself, do we know we write a mission statement this morning. Do we know what to write? Lord, what's my mission? What's my purpose in life? And John was, this is equally important, John was content in his mission, in his purpose in life. Are we content in our mission, in our purpose in life, and where God has us, and the roles that he's called us to fulfill? Let's pray. Lord, I am... Uh, humbled and challenged by John the Baptist's testimony and his example, Father, this one who found all his reason for living in bearing testimony of someone else. Father, this one who shunned the spotlight so that he could reflect glory to another. Lord, as you know, we are inherently self-centered and self-seeking and self-serving. And it takes a rebirth at your hand to give us a new nature, a nature able to be other-centered, God-centered, and other-centered. Lord, I pray for each one of us that this week you would give us a clearer vision of the mission you've commissioned us with. Lord, we're all called to bear witness to you, to share the hope we have, to bear testimony to the person of Jesus. But Lord, all in unique ways based on who you've made us and where you've placed us, what you've called us to do. And I ask this week that we would share John's example 
in having some clear sense, Lord, of our mission and our purpose, of our calling, and, Lord, a real contentment related to who you've made us and where you've placed us. Lord, help us to worship you as John did by laying our life down at your feet, giving you all that we are or have, and saying, Lord, you're free to do with us as you will. Help us to be, Lord, like John the Baptist. In Jesus' name, amen.